this is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Once again, I am thrilled to tell you about dailygiving.org, the incredible crowdsourcing platform for charity, leveraging your gifts, vetted companies or organizations that are recipients of these amazing donations, 8,000 and counting every single day, getting higher and higher. You get to give charity without thinking about it. You get an email delivered to your inbox every morning telling you what organizations are beneficiaries that particular day. So you learn about amazing causes. You join with the entire Jewish people in this beautiful shared mission. It's a way of bonding us together as a Jewish nation while also doing so much good for many different fabulous institutions in our Jewish world. Dailygiving.org, please sign up today. Join me, I'm a donor, and I would love if you would be as well. This week, I think one of the more unique guests, certainly in terms of vocation that we've had, Daniel Levin is a hostage negotiator, Middle East expert, author, really fascinating. He has a book out called Proof of Life, which has gotten all kinds of acclaim from many different sources. So a really unique opportunity to hear from Daniel today. Meanwhile, a reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Email comments, questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with Middle East expert, hostage negotiator, proof of life author, Daniel Levin. We are here with attorney and hostage negotiator, as well as author. Daniel Levin, and uh, Daniel recently wrote Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. How are you, Daniel? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, first of all, is it Levin or Levin? Actually, it's Levin, but you know, when I came to the States, I had to adjust, and then my wife's maiden name is Levin, so something in between all that, so it's, it got a little messy. So you're, you're Levin and your wife is Levin? Yep, it's our our uh, kipot at the at the wedding were Levin and Levine. It was like a, some weird law firm. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, because I, I, there's no e at the end of your spelling, so I was there's wondering no the, uh, the pronunciation. Okay, fantastic. So, Daniel, tell us a little bit about where you are from, what your background was. I was born in Israel in 1963. I'm 58 years old. My mom is from Switzerland, actually, actually her family from Germany, but she's from the Italian part of Switzerland where she grew up. My dad is first generation, actually was born in Lithuania, but then came to Israel as a three-year-old, was the generation of the Palmach, fought in the War of Independence, got injured there, uh, and was uh, active in the Labour Party early on, was close to Ben-Gurion, and he ended up having a political career, was posted as Israeli ambassador, originally to Cyprus and then to East Africa. And so I grew up in the 60s in Kenya when he was Israeli ambassador there. And then we went back to Israel in 1969, and he decided to leave politics then. And what was supposed to be a brief timeout for my parents in Switzerland ended up to be much longer there. In, my father passed away a few years ago. My mom's still there. But I then went to school in Switzerland, came to the States for a year after high school for a whole bunch of reasons, for everything from martial arts tournaments to yeshiva to all kinds of stuff. 
and then went back to uh, Switzerland, uh, did law school there, and then went to Israel and uh, did my army service. So it's really all over the place, really. And I came back to the States in 1992 and have more or less lived here ever since. My family's here, my children are here. So that's wow. in, in, a, in a 90-second nutshell, the, the life of an Israeli gypsy. Yeah, so there's a lot to dig into there. I, I, I specifically want to hear more about the martial arts tournaments and yeshiva. But um, before we get there, so what brought your parents specifically to Switzerland? My mom was from there, and uh, my dad didn't wasn't sure what he wanted to do. We, you know, we came back to a very different Israel in 1969 after Kenya, obviously after the Six Day War and the whole debate over what to do with the territories and the Khartoum Resolution. My dad was more in the, uh, shall we say, what a progressive wing of the Labour Party was in favor of negotiations at that moment. And uh, and a lot of the Labour Party, this is all pre-Likud, pre-Begging, obviously. And so some parts of the Labour Party around Dayan and Paris at the time who were very responsible for starting the settlements were on the other side. So my dad thought he'd take a brief time out from uh, politics and Switzerland seemed like a good place. And he ended up running an Israeli company's European operations out of Switzerland. But it just one year turned to the next and then Likud came to power and and uh, he didn't really see a future politically in Israel for himself. And so they ended up staying there. And then for me, I considered myself Israeli. I it was clear that I would end up there, which I did eventually. But it was a very different country. But my parents, you know, as these things often happen, you you man plans and God laughs. And so they had all these plans exactly. It would just be a one or two year timeout in Switzerland. Then they'd go back. And of course, uh, that didn't play out that way. What was your father's actual background before, like early, early in his life? As I said, he grew up in... Uh, pre-independence Tel Aviv, went to Gymnasia Herzliya there and uh, then was one of the in the Palmach generations. And so he was injured just a few days before the Declaration of Independence in 19 May 1948, severely injured, lost his left arm, was really shut up. But actually, there's a death notice about him in an Israeli newspaper because no one thought he'd survive it, but did survive and then was sent to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota for recovery for a whole bunch of follow-up surgeries and ended up studying in Minnesota, studied and did a BA in economics, and then went back to Israel and got really active in the Labor Party, in the Hisadrut, in the trade union. And so he, even he never really worked as an economist. He immediately stepped into Israeli politics, first from the trade union's perspective, got very close to African pre-independence leaders in the 50s, all the Kenyatan, Kuma, Kaunda, all those leaders who then became presidents in the country. So because of, through the trade union movement, so because he knew them all, then it was pretty logical for him to then be posted in Africa. He was the youngest Israeli ambassador at the time. He was in his early 30s when he was posted in, in his first diplomatic positions. And so uh, that was his career. And he really thought that would be his trajectory. But he had not, not really dramatic falling out. He just didn't like the the, the trajectory of Israeli politics, perhaps the failed integration of the major Moroccan immigration and the major uh, Yemenite immigration, Yemenite Jews, and the the elitist aspect of the Labour Party, the, the so-called Pinkas Adom, all those things that for him, he was starting to question whether there was really room for politics. But politics is really strange. Like many professions, if you step out for even just a little too long, it's very hard to get back in. There are very few really successful second acts. And so that led, you know, one thing to the other. So obviously Israel is very much in our lives and we're there a lot. And I always consider myself Israeli as did he, but it was in, in sort of really finding a footprint again, especially after Israel changed dramatically in 78, in 77, 78 with the, with Likud coming to power, it, it never really was quite the same thing for him. 
Well, it sounds like a fascinating man. And uh, I think specifically back to when he got injured, <laughs> you know, the old Mark Twain quote that uh, reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So yeah, he, he, he kept that death notice over his office his whole life. That's that sounds like a real a real uh, you know instead of a fighter in in his own in his own way. Did he ever come around in terms of reconciling with the way that Israel evolved and kind of as it shifted to the right and became a more of a center right type of country over time? What he thought is that, uh, and I think he was right about this, Preston, that that problems that you don't deal with simply metastasize. So whether that's the settlements, or whether that's the the exemption, the military exemption for the ultra-religious that initially was for a few hundred people under Ben-Gurion, but then metastasized in something else, especially when demographically that's the fastest growing part of Israel society and also the poorest one uh, of Jewish Israel society now. So he, he sort of saw these trajectories and didn't think something good would come of it. He, you know, for him, it was a double issue. Uh, he was worried, obviously, about the growing impossibility of some form of separation of the people, meaning of some form of two-state solution. At some point, you're creating facts on the ground. But his bigger worry almost, I shouldn't say bigger, but but what really viscerally affected him on a personal level was what this was doing to Israeli society, the hardening, the coarseness of Israeli society in itself. And so what was hard to see over his life was that he himself as a person, as someone who loved literature, loved classical music, was was a fine person and in different worlds and different lives probably would never have had a military background, uh, didn't find himself anymore, didn't recognize himself in Israeli society, that within a few years and certainly a few decades, it became a different society from what he knew. And so, you know, the, the European taxi driver who with whom you discuss Goethe's Faust or something like that, that was became a thing of the past. And I'm not trying to romanticize that, but it just became a different country. So there are all these social failures in addition to the political ones that at some point he just he obviously had very, very close friends from that generation that, that were, remained his closest friends throughout his life. But it was sad to watch that. And even over my lifetime, I saw that, you know, where you, you're seeing it's not so much a shifting to the right as much as just a shifting to being its own Middle Eastern country. And the roots that formed my identity are just no longer the ones that form, you know, my children's identity. They're, they're peers in Israel. And so that's just a fact of life. It's neither good nor bad. It just is what it is. But I watched with him this estrangement, this personal estrangement, born somewhat out of political disappointment, but mainly out of social disappointment. What's interesting, though, is that it sounds like that didn't sully or sour your own sense of identification as an Israeli, even when you were living sort of in exile, so to speak, you uh, remained identified as Israeli and kind of knew that you would you would go back there. Um, so obviously there was still this strong link, this strong, you know, bond that that either he and the family felt or at least you individually felt even while you were in Switzerland. Yeah, I, I mean, that was always our identity and it, it manifests itself in many ways, you know, whether you keep one day of Sukkot or two, two days of Sukkot and, and all that stuff and whether, you know, Passover ends a day earlier for us, it doesn't end a day earlier, things like that. You know, I think our orientation was always very much that, that was the center of our lives. And then there are certain milestones that make you challenge that. So, for example, you know, 1982, the Lebanon War, the first war in our thinking now, and we can, this is a topic we can discuss for hours, obviously, but for the first time where you felt like it was an offensive war of Israel, it wasn't just a defensive war. And so those were those kinds of milestones. It was my generation, the Lebanon War, where you start to ask yourself, is that really what you want to be doing? 
where it's no longer a matter of defending yourself and your, it's not about your existence being threatened directly by an attack. And I'm not trying to make it a political discussion, but those were the types of milestones that made you rethink that and whether that's the future or if you're going to start a family, that's where you really want those roots to be. You want them, you want it to be part of your life, but whether you really want to center it there. And then really, you know, with the massive expansion of settlements and the, the, this, uh, radicalization of Israeli society that became a tribal, like many societies become tribal, like the U.S. has become tribal, certainly seen over the last few years, you start to question that because you're always asked to identify. And, and what happened to me was that, you know, our family politically was always very progressive, Labor Party, and perhaps in my case, even civil rights, merits and all that, but also it has a religious component. A lot of family members are religious. I grew up in Bnei Akiva at the time, you know, that it was an incompatibility. Nakiva was very much identified with the national religious settlement movements. And so, of course, there are exceptions to that, but as a general trend. So friends of mine in Nakiva from Switzerland, almost all of them who did Aliyah to Israel ended up living in the settlements. And so, you know, you look for your identity in different ways and you're starting to thread a needle socially, but that becomes complicated and a little exhausting when you're in Israel. And so for me also, when I then went back to Israel and did my military service, I also ended up redefining my relationship with strictly religious life. These are processes that are odd. It was something that my dad and his parents even had gone through. My grandfather, who had left an ultra-religious life in Lithuania because he wasn't interested in working so that his brothers could continue studying in the Cheder, and he became a secular, rabidly secular Zionist. So you start to see all these impacts of, you know, personal choices. Where What ends up happening is that 20, 30, 40 years later, it's a very hard to find yourself in a larger scale in a country because you don't have a large group with which you can identify on the one hand, you might belong socially, politically into one camp, religiously into a different camp, and those camps usually don't talk to each other, with exceptions. And I understand the always beautiful personal interest stories, but as a general trend, it's very hard to find yourself there. And so that's interesting just to me. That's, I know that that's not interesting to anyone else. Even my children have different identities. But for me personally, and for, I saw it for my father's generation, that became difficult. It's interesting because uh, you talk about, you know, Bnei Akiva in Switzerland. What, what was kind of your family's religious orientation? You mentioned a grandfather who sort of, I guess, rebelled and probably during this, you know, during a time of great upheaval and around the First World War, probably in that whole era. And um, where there was a tremendous amount of movement away from religion in Eastern Europe. Uh, and and then uh, your your own father you know, had his own identity. What, what was your family's, your nuclear family's religious orientation? Why were they aligned with B'nai Akiva? And, and then sort of how did that impute in your life? Uh, B'nai Akiva was actually a personal choice of mine. My parents came from very different backgrounds. My father, you said correctly, his parents were very much the generation swept up a little bit in the Bolshevik revolution, which swept through yeshivas in Eastern Europe, Russia and Lithuania. I mean, that that's reminiscent of this Amazing sentence in the Gemara that says that once in 70 years, a new star emerges on the sky that misleads the captain. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful Gemara. And it's essentially meant to mean that every 70 years, there, in fact, there is an astrological phenomenon of that nature, but it's, and it, it go, dates back to Roman days, obviously, with the exile and the destruction of the Second Temple. But what it does show is that every 70 years, there's a new thing that sweeps through Judaism and then it's replaced by a new one, which is why the Chazanish was able to predict pretty much the end of communism in, in Soviet Union, also with that 70-year marker, by the way. But it, that was my father's family, his grandparents' family that got swept through that. So way before Holocaust, they all left and became early secular Zionists in Palestine at the time. 
my mother's family came from a very religious Aguda family, both in Switzerland and in Berlin, and they were basically displaced by the war. So her family, which was very much a member of the, the Aguda Sisoil family in Berlin, very religious, but in the sense of Samson Raphael Hirsch, Hershey, religious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so Torah kind of religious. Uh, they got swept up in that and got lost a little bit. So my mother's mother, so there was a split in that family. Some either decided to go down the yeshiva Aguda route and moved more in towards the Hasidic Polish type of yeshivas and Lithuanian yeshivas. But the Yekish type of Hershian uh, orthodoxy really didn't survive in, in any meaningful way. We study, we study Hirsch, but as a mass movement, it didn't really survive because of the world of yeshivas didn't survive that way. So, for example, my mother's uncle was Chaim Deutschland, who had started the Besyakov school. Uh, as an example, right? So that all got lost. And so they lost themselves through the war, through that displacement. Uh, and, and, and some became completely secular. Some became uh, religious in the Lithuanian, Polish, Hasidic way in, in, in Israel today, or in Borough Park, right? Or in Flatbush, uh, or in, or in, in Lakewood. And so our family got lost in that way. And as a result, when my parents met, my mom was very young, very impressed with my dad, who was a, a very secular Zionist at the time. Uh, and so she tried to navigate that a little bit where where was a little bit of religion. We kept kosher at home, but not really kept Shabbat and all that. And then when we came to Switzerland, for me, the most meaningful connection to Israel as a young boy, I was seven when we moved to Switzerland, but then later on when I became 10, 11, was through Bnei Akiva. Yeah, I wasn't thinking of it in political terms, in terms of settlements or anything. Like, again, we're talking 1970, 1971, 72. No one was really thinking of settlements the way we're thinking of settlements today. Very few people, certainly not a kid. So for me, Bnei Akiva was a home. And so I then brought that actually into our nuclear family more than that's the one I grew up in. And so from the time I was 11, 12, certainly by mitzvah and on, I lived that life and then my family started to live that life. So it was, it was kind of a weird process and it started really more as a social process. I was trying to find my Israeli connection as a kid when we moved to Switzerland. Switzerland wasn't New York, then, you know, it's a fairly small Jewish community. So it's just a, it's my own personal journey. It's not, it wasn't some kind of a premeditated strategy. But once you went to Israel, it sounds like that shifted again, I guess, with army service and, and so forth. It did. Uh, it did. Uh, it, you know, I, I don't want to trivialize it. It wasn't just one day thinking, oh, my God, the ultra-religious are just parasitic or anything like that. It just felt it was a gradual alienation where that world became irreconcilable. So the, the Nekiva world, the national religious world became politically extreme for me. And I wasn't interested in that. I was politically just as a, as a social political statement, not interested in that world at all. And the ultra-religious world, many, many members of my family, mainly my mom's family that live in Me'asharim and Matastof and Nebrak in Israel, uh, were people I couldn't socially relate to. And that was before the ultra-religious world was squarely in the national religious Likud camp. You know, for, for many years throughout Paris and Shamir and pre-Netanyahu, there was a jostling for who would get their votes. And the national religion, the, the ultra-religious were really happy to go with either one. As long as a as pragmatist. <laughs> the pragmatist. That changed yeah. a little bit now, I think. I think that generation is squarely in one camp, which is a challenge for Israel. But uh, for me, I just, I, you know, then serving in the army and at some point you have to decide who you are also socially in terms of what your values are and how, whether you're going to live out your value, or whether you're going to live in a way despite what your values are. And for me, living out those values that resulted in alienation from the religious aspect of my life. It's interesting because there is sort of that more left-wing strand within the national religious camp. Talk about like uh, of, uh, Amital and that whole, you know, in the Gush, that whole, I guess, wing of things. So that there is uh, certainly not the dominant strain, but, you know, there is that kind of more progressive. Yeah, I, I, hel 
I held on to that, Ulava Mital and Alon Shvut and all that for years too. And when I, you know, when I came, came here and I was to New York and I was at YU and I studied with, with Rabbi Soloveitchik at the time, I was considering doing smicha even. You know, there was that where I said, I can really reconcile that, but that we're talking here in, you know, late 70s, early 80s, that strain, you know, is not really meaningful any longer. It lost out. It does exist. And here or there, you obviously have progressive voices and they're once in a while you hear for around the time of Rathbin's assassination in 95, you, you were looking more for those voices because you wanted a counterweight to the Dean Rodef kind of pronouncements that came, that emanated from that world. Uh, and the Kiryat Arba world that, that had taken it over. But I, I think it would be misleading to say that it's still a meaningful counterweight. It's a tiny, tiny minority. And and so I, I, I could not find myself. I appreciated it and I live it out as a personalized way. But especially once I started my own family, had my own kids, and we started to make those kinds of decisions, I formulated the religiousness and the knowledge much more as a personal rather than the social matter and didn't want it to you know to be grouped into one direction or another. Interesting. So now you went to the army and what was your early career aspirations? You went as, as you started a family, it sounds like at some point you moved back to America and went to school and, and everything and trained, I guess, as a lawyer. What, what was kind of the early uh, vision for you? So after my year in New York, I went back to Switzerland, went to law school there. And um, after law school, it was clear to me I'd go back to Israel, do the army. And at the same time, I had two important developments in my life, that opportunities. One is I did a PhD in law. And the topic of my PhD was basically conflicts between religious and secular law. And so what I did is I examined Jewish family law, in particular divorce law, some inheritance law, mainly divorce law, and examined it from the perspective of secular law. So, so essentially what I did is what the basic question under my thesis was, what does a secular American, Swiss, German, whatever, French judge, how does he have to evaluate certain aspects of Jewish divorce law, in particular, the unilateral polygamy aspect, meaning the Heter de Rabbeinu Gershon, which only is technically available to men, not to women, right? So is that a violation of secular principles or not? And that impacted me greatly also in my own relationship with religion. The more, the deeper I went into that, not just in terms of reconciling religious law with secular beliefs, but also in questioning the sources of religious law. I'm not, I don't want to hike, you know, hijack this conversation, make it a religious one, but that affected me. That was number one. And the other, the other thing that affected me in my time in Israel in the late 80s was I had an opportunity to do an internship at the Supreme Court in Israel under uh, Justice Aaron Barak, who later on became president of the Supreme Court. And working with him, and I worked with him then for years, also beyond the internship on his writings, it impacted my thinking very much also, and it impacted the interface of religious law in my life. So so those were the movements. And, and so I ended up being there for four years, working with him. And so that the experience of my, my army service and the, my PhD work, and then the internship with him, formed me very much. And then in 1992, there was the question whether I would continue there. And I had a chance of uh, a professorship at University of Haifa to teach law, conflicts of law in particular, or whether I would do something else. And got a scholarship to come to the States, to Columbia, to do a postdoc. And uh, I decided that would be, if I didn't do it then, I wouldn't do it again. And as so many for a bunch of twists and turns in my life, I ended up stuck. In the states, uh, I ended up <laughs> coming to Colombia, and then one thing led to the next, and and then in '95 I met my wife, and so you know a whole bunch of factors and reasons for why that happened, also political ones, also Rabin's assassination, which affected me. So yeah, I don't want to hijack this conversation, but yeah. a lot of it was random, just events in my life and that. But the master plan was very different, and like all of my master plans, they they became irrelevant <laughs> as soon as I forged them. 
It's interesting that you worked so long for you know with Barack because obviously on the right he's uh, an incredibly maligned figure, kind of for his judicial activism and you know kind of legislating from the bench and you know, his approach to jurisprudence. Um, he's kind of like a symbol or like an avatar for the right of left-wing judicial activism. Would you say that you went to work for him because of your political orientation, or more so that going to work for him shaped your worldview moving forward? I mean, it definitely shaped me in those years. I've also gone through transformations of my own. I didn't idolize him, you know, as a prophet that some certainly on the progressive side of Israeli society did. The way I looked at it at the time, and to some extent still do now, is that what we call his judicial activism was one that he did because Israel never had been able to get its act together and actually agree on a constitution. And so in the absence of written Bill of Rights, he created this, you can call it undemocratic if you want to be polemic, but essentially he said in the absence of parliament being able to do that, which would be the democratic principle as representative of the Israeli people who vote, it was an obligation of the courts to declare those principles to be sacrosanct, right? And then the mechanics of that and creating these basic laws and saying they need a qualified majority to be changed and all that is contentious. And I can understand that that's contentious. I think I'm objective enough to know that there is legitimate reasons to say that is problematic. So he basically said that the rule of law trumps the democratic principle when it comes to that. I don't, he's not hiding that. There's no conspiracy about that. That's simply where he turns out on it. I think that to say that the right is the one that the, there were plenty of people on the progressive left, including in universities in Yerushalayim and Tel Aviv, that were critical of him for that too, including some of his very close friends. It wasn't just the right. In later years, this idea that the Supreme Court would be, especially through Bagatz, through its function as High Court of Justice, would be able to be the one blocking egregious violations of human rights by the Israeli government by relying on these laws. Therefore, it became associated as the pinata for the Israeli right. I think that that was a later process that at the time wasn't really identified that strongly with right versus left in the years I was there. But I obviously I admired him greatly. I still admire him greatly. I mean, he 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 was a person of tremendous impact. There had been other justices, people like Chaim Cohn before that, also on the question of religious versus secular law where Chaim Cohn had a tremendous impact. But Barack certainly was an extremely impactful president of the Supreme Court because uh, he really create a presence. But, you know, I don't know if them if they will all survive, if we continue to see a politicization of the court as we see it now. And that was the pound of flesh that some of the coalition members de demanded in order to topple Netanyahu, now, especially Bennett's party, Nayela Chaked. I'm not sure all of that will actually, this legacy will actually survive in Israel. You know, I think as Jews, we always make a mistake when we believe that we're empire builders. I don't think that's really the way we should go about these things, do the best that we can at the time that we do it and adjust to new circumstances later on. So you were a long time in, in America, you had a JD, you had a PhD. Was your goal to get into some kind of, you know, diplomacy or some kind of international, you know, relations of sorts? Or did you want to, you know, go to a big law firm and <laughs> make a lot of money? What was kind of your, your vision, you know, once you're here in America, Colombia, you know, starting to live the American dream, so to speak? It was a, a lot of random events that happened. So I came to Columbia, did that year there, really enjoyed it, decided not to do the postdoc that I got the scholarship actually from Switzerland, from the National Foundation in Switzerland, because I just didn't want to spend the next 10 years working on something that didn't interest me enough to spend 10 years doing it. And through a very bizarre coincidence, I got a job offer actually from one of the large law firms in New York and ended up, I, I felt that that was something I'd never really experienced. I didn't know that aspect of the law. So I decided to give it a try and wasn't quite ready to go back to Israel at that moment. I really wanted to experience that a little bit more. Worked there for a few years, met my wife in those years, 
and um, was clear to me I didn't want to spend time in a, in a large law firm. But what had happened in the very different aspect of my life is my youth in Africa actually came back, which is that in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, a lot of Mandela got out of prison. A lot of African states had gone through transformation where they're moving away, trying to open their countries, political reform and economic reform. And I wanted to get more engaged in that from the legal side, I wanted to work on uh, helping build those economies and helping draft those constitutions. I'd had a chance to work on some constitutional reforms, such as in South Africa and new Russian constitution on the uh, freedom of religion provisions based on my academic background and my own PhD. And so there were all these various points of contact that opened up these opportunities. And so I started my own firm in the mid nineties in New York with a, with a few friends. And the idea was to work with these new countries, new, I don't mean new countries because they'd been independent since the early sixties, but these new economies and new societies that were emerging and help them create new constitutions, privatize their countries, bring in, create financial literacy, bring in people who had been cut off from society and politics and the economy, bring them into it. And so this, the firm started to do this kind of work and became much more of development work. And early on in this by 97, I was doing a lot of work in countries, South Africa, Angola, Zambia, Zimbabwe. It was extremely interesting. It was academically, intellectually interesting to me. It became a center of my life very, very quickly within a few years. The work was fascinating. And uh, what we figured out was that the way we had gone about it, which is acting essentially as legal advisors and as consultants, didn't make a lot of sense. It was the World Bank approach and how they did it. And instead, what we started to do is create basically a knowledge library that we would transfer to local talent. So we would say, look, these are the best practices. This is what legislation should look like. These are education programs. These are games for children to make them interested in politics or economy. And now here it is. Run with it. If you make mistakes, at least you make your own mistakes. You don't import other people's mistakes. So it was the non-McKinsey kind of approach to development. And so we created these modules and these forms of e-government, essentially, very in the late 90s already. One thing led to the other. We were then approached by a European head of state, the Prince of Liechtenstein, and said, I like your approach to development. Would you be interested in starting with me a non-for-profit foundation based on your approach to development that takes what you do in politics and economy and do it in other aspects, criminal justice system, family law, healthcare, education reform, this bottom-up kind of approach to education. And that's what led to the foundation that I've been running now for, for many years. And that in turn led us into war zones in rebuilding failed states. And that led to the mediation and hostage negotiations that I described in my books. I'm trying to condense it a little bit as a timeline, but some of it's random, but there's this trajectory starting from the mid to second half of the 90s where we created new forms of development where we were working with the next generation of leaders in this country, in all these countries, initially in Africa and then North Africa and the Middle East more and more. And that led to having the kinds of relationships where we could really access decision makers. And so, you know, the things that I describe in my book are a consequence of that kind of work starting, you know, 25 years ago. It's interesting is that, you know, you were doing all this as an attorney, but it sounds like you must have had a team of, you know, sort of international development type, you know, PhD type uh, think tank sort of oriented people, because a lot of what you're talking about doesn't sound like legal work as much as it is sort of, you know, exporting uh, knowledge and uh, almost like nation building in a certain way. 
I am sure, as a listener, you are familiar with The Forward, the long-standing Jewish publication. Well, The Forward has a new podcast called A Bintel Brief, based on the long-standing advice column in the paper. It is now turned into an audio advice column where you could get interesting answers to fascinating questions from Gina Green, who is a movement builder, very active in the Jews of Color initiative, as well as Lynn Harris, a writer and activist, also a comedian and a former advice columnist for Glamour and other print magazines of blessed memory. A Bintel Brief, B-I-N-T-E-L is the word Bintel Brief. Give it a listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. It is. And so you bring in educators and psychologists and you try to figure out, you know, so even the way you go about education, this whole idea that you, I had participated in some of the nonsense where, you know, you're, I remember one experience I wrote about in my last book, Nothing But a Circus, where I was um, part of a World Bank seminar in Angola talking about payment systems. And you have some mathematician in English lecturing them about algorithms. And then you realize at some point, the people in the audience, first of all, not only not mathematicians or economists, but they don't speak English. So you just have this five-day seminar you just participated in and it made no sense whatsoever. No one even bothered to hire a translator. And so you do enough of that nonsense where you realize the way development is done by the West, by the Bretton Woods institutions all over the world just didn't make a lot of sense. So we really approach it very differently. And we started, yeah, initially started as legal work and you realize very quickly the legal part of it was a small part. By the way, it's become more, more relevant now because a lot of the um, diplomacy work that I'm involved in is done through constitutional means. In other words, to give an example, in a country like Yemen or Libya, a lot of the mediation between the signs is by saying, let's work on a new constitution with new models that balance the power between the tribes in a country like Yemen with 187 tribes. So you're using that legal process of constitutional reform to also do diplomacy and mediation. So there is that connection where it becomes, again, very law heavy in my life today. But as a larger scale in development, you need educators, you need doctors, you need psychologists, you need economists, you need social workers, you need all kinds of skills. And you bring that talent into your process as it's relevant to the process. I would imagine that it's critical to find the right partners on the ground because I'm just thinking now to the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, right? And how difficult that was. And besides, you know, for the sort of the humiliation aspect of it and all of that, but the notion that you could be in a country for 20 years and still not have the ideals take root strongly enough to withstand, you know, your departure suggests that there needs to be a really sort of intensive focus on finding the right local partners who can really stand their own ground. It is. And it goes beyond just finding this humility that was absent. So I, I'm not trying to trash American policy over the last 20 years and certainly not focused just on the withdrawal. But, you know, first of all, the bulk of American focus in Afghanistan was in building an army, teaching how to fight, which is a little ridiculous. The idea of going to a country, the one thing you don't need to teach Afghans how, is how to fight, obviously. And then beyond that, whenever we talk about nation building, I don't want to be uh, flippant about this, but when you do this kind of development work, whether it's multilaterally through UN organizations or bilaterally through USAID or DFID if you're British, you start to realize that there is a almost a coding flaw in the way development works, which is that these development agencies cannot stop trying to import their models into other countries. 
I'm not trying to be silly about it and say it's that God is so foolish, even though it is kind of foolish. It's really, it's hardwired into how these bilateral development agencies work. USAID is part of the State Department. They really export American models. So if you go to a country like Afghanistan, the idea that you talk to them about multi-party democracy and two-chamber systems and some kind of a federalist type of structure and executive with a certain ways and separation of powers in a U.S. model, which, by the way, doesn't even work properly in the U.S. for its own historical reasons, right? Because the U.S. was a copy, let's say, of the Swiss model with the two-chamber systems. And that had very Swiss reality that didn't work quite in the U.S. because, for example, the gap in populations between the most populous states and the least populous states is way, way bigger in the U.S. than it ever was in Switzerland. So you're outside a range of what would be reasonable, and we're paying a price for that today. If you have you know, the two Dakotas, Wyoming, Montana together have eight senators in California with 40 million people has two senators. So there's a gap here that is no longer meaningful. And I'm not talking about whom it benefits. I'm not trying to make a political discussion. So the idea that I would export an American model or a Swiss model or a British model or a Japanese model into Afghanistan or to Yemen or to Libya or to the Congo makes no sense. But to do that differently is a lot of work. And that's the point of our foundation. To do that differently means you identify the next generation because the current generation is already corrupted and hopeless. You have to have the patience to bring them out of the country, invest a few years in them, in all the areas that they're going to need, and make sure that you keep away all the temptations to keep them from going corrupt. That means you also have to rethink your selection process. So, for example, that's my conversations with Professor Danny Kahaneman on how do we interview people properly and select them and stop that thinking that we can somehow prognosticate their behavior into the future, right? What are the relevant parameters? What are the cognitive tests that make sense? This goes very, very deep into all kinds of directions here, but that's a lot of work and development agencies are not well suited. So if you take Afghanistan, this was an effort that was destined to fail. So then the only reasonable question is we have only two options. You either invest in proper development, which the U.S. has not done because perhaps also it's not forced to do because it's still basking in its glory as the emerging superpower from the Cold War. And this is beautiful statement by a British poet that says nothing wilts as quickly as laurels that have been rested upon. Right. And so these laurels have wilted really, really quickly. So you either do development properly, you invest in really bottom up development with the people on the ground, allowing them to develop their own models and supporting that process. Right. Giving them food for alternatives. It's not a U.S. model. It's not a Swiss model. It's not a centralized French model. It's going to be an Afghan model where they become part of the solution. Or you say, we're not going to do this stuff. We're just not going to be in those countries. We're not going to go state building. We're just going to very narrowly define American national interests where they're affected. And in the context of 9-11, again, now with 20 years anniversary, we don't need to rethink that and all the mistakes and the lies and, the, and all that stuff. That, that's, again, for another day. But certainly the one thing that was definitely absent in the Afghanistan campaign, in the Iraq war, in the relationship of Iraq and Iran, where Iran now emerges the big threat, but we moved Saddam, who was the only real natural threat to the Iranians. When you look at that now, the one thing that was absence is actually even defining what our U.S. national interest really is. So what happened was you have two choices and neither one did we actually carry out properly. We either go into Afghanistan and help build that country with proper development bottom up the way it should be done, which didn't happen. And we don't really have our development agencies are not hardwired that way. Or we stay out of it because we haven't defined a national interest. Instead, what we did is have this you know 20 year war and presence in a country where obviously the departure very much showed how much it had failed. It was absolutely nothing to show for it with all the corruption, everything that comes with it. It's easy to be polemic, but there's a reason for the failure because the only two viable options were not the ones that were considered.
I guess the counterpoint would be that the gold never was really nation building, that it was ultimately domestic national defense. And that objective was achieved, you know, spectacularly in the sense that there hasn't been another major attack on American soil. And so the nation building is almost like an afterthought or a, you know, a bonus. And there, that was never really the, the chief objective. Yeah, I would challenge that because, I mean, you're, this is what we call the fallacy of the predetermined outcome. I, the, the fact that there hasn't been another attack on American soil, there's so many flaws into that statement from where I sit. First of all, we mourn rightly the loss of 3,000 people, but somehow or other, we, half the country can accept the loss of six, 700,000 people from a pandemic that we don't really deal with properly. So it becomes almost a, a theater of the absurd to talk about what really our losses are and how we should react to the number one. Number two, the absence of additional attacks on American soil in the model of Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden had far less to do with the presence of Afghanistan, but rather the increased cooperation with the Pakistani security service, which, by the way, led to the capture and, and killing of Osama bin Laden. This wasn't just some raid despite the Pakistani security service. I'm not saying you have to go quite as far as, say, Cy Hirsch with his conspiracy theories there of how that happened, but there's way more there. So in terms of having prevented another attack that had very little to do with the ongoing occupation of Afghanistan, it certainly had absolutely nothing to do with the Iraq war. The destabilization of the Middle East and the creation of ISIS had a lot more to do with the Iraq war because those were the Baptist officers that we didn't really bother to integrate in any post-Saddam solution who connected with all the jihadists that Saddam had freed from prison, very same way that Bashar al-Assad did it in Syria. So I'm not trying to express a political view here, but just factually, the 20 year occupation of Afghanistan did absolutely nothing to prevent more attacks on American soil. There's certainly no causation there. There's not even a correlation. There are other factors that prevented us, including deep intelligence cooperation in Saudi Arabia and in Pakistan. But that's you know a topic for perhaps another day. So when did you start getting into, I think, what you start what you wrote about in your most recent book and sort of hostage negotiations and, and that whole aspect of your career? It sounds like it was a natural outgrowth of being enmeshed in these developing societies and, and trying to you know work in the development space. How did you gain an, a fluency in negotiation and, and specifically with hostages and that sort of thing? What was that about? Uh, you know, that was just a more of an organic part of my life. And I, I can't even say that I have that fluency. It's just my particular life and how that evolved. I don't, I don't, you know, I think once we take it beyond that, we become these sort of Jason Bourne caricatures, really. And that's for the movies. It's not in real life. What happened here was that after the Arab Spring, 2011, 2012, when that the whole Arab world was basically on fire from North Africa and the Middle East, because our foundation was active in helping rebuild those countries, we're still active in Libya as an example. We were asked in 2012-13 to get involved in Syria by all the sides to the war because uh, Syria was on fire. It was before Russia intervened to help Bashar al-Assad, so it wasn't clear that he would win. So there was an interest in getting involved. And so we said, we're happy to mediate between the sides, but under the condition that you give us a few young people from all the various groups, from the Alawi, Shia government regime groups, and from the Sunni majority, from the Druze, from the Christians, and help us work with this young team to have a post-conflict type of power group that can help rebuild the country. And so we were allowed to do that. And that created a network of relationships in Syria that in turn, when the first Westerners were being kidnapped, we were approached 
by families, in some cases by government, saying, listen, we know that you're active there, you have access to the regime, you have access to the opposition. This is before the massive influx of ISIS and jihadist fighters in 2014, and then the Russian intervention in 15 that tipped the war. And so the events that I describe in my book are one such event. The reason I, just, I decided to write it down is, first of all, it all happened over 20 days, so it was something that I could condense. And secondly, I made a promise to two young girls at the end of the book to tell their story, which is why I ended up writing it down. The negotiation, trying to find out what happened to a missing person, to a hostage, who helped them, trying to get proof of life, and if you're lucky enough to negotiate the terms of the release, that was just a result of this work that we had done and access to decision makers. It was really more a, a result of having had a few years to amass a network of relationships and favors and counterfavors, either directly with someone or through third parties. And that's the only way that I could do it. It wasn't that this is not some kind of a super successful secret agent who parachutes in behind enemy lines and extracts. But that's really more for movies. This is more a matter of just having been on the ground in these countries, including in Syria, and having had a relationship network that evolved that allowed me to do this kind of work. So tell us the story. What exactly was the, the narrative here? Then what took place that, that, that was so important to document? In 2014, uh, it was a year that I had been asked in a number of cases to help. And it was a particularly gruesome year. It was the year that, if you remember, Stephen Sotloff, James Foley, a few American journalists were decapitated in the fall of 14. It was extremely traumatic. Those very public gruesome that were put on, on YouTube, those decapitations. Uh, and it was right after that. And I had had, uh, I'd been involved in several of them and, and, and it was really burnt out. I didn't want to do this anymore. Our foundation was no longer active in Syria because it was very clear that the Assad regime wasn't interested in any form of mediation. So we pulled out of this project that we called Project Bystar at the time. Uh, but I was still being asked by family members and some governments to see if I could find information on missing people. But for those hostages who were being held by ISIS and ISIS-affiliated groups or Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups such as the Nusra rebels, they were often being held either in the north or in the northeast of the country, either in near Aleppo or in near Raqqa in the northeast near the Iraqi border. And it was very hard to help in any meaningful way. In some few cases, I could get at least information on what happened or whether a person had been killed so the family at least had some closure. And so I really didn't want to do this anymore. But I was asked to come to a meeting in Paris by somebody on what he called a life or death matter. I had no idea they wanted to talk about Syria. And so I went and met this person whom I knew in Paris. And then he sort of broke down in front of me and I walked through Paris and said that a son of his closest friend, who I turned out later, I found out was he was very close to and raised this child at some point. This young man had marched into Syria in the north and had gone missing and asked me if I could help. And my initial instinct was to say no, but he really broke down in front of me. So I called a close friend of mine called Khalid Al-Mari. He's a Saudi, very well-connected individual, actually son of a Syrian mother and Saudi father, just like Osama bin Laden, as he liked to joke, and, uh, and asked him whether he thought we could help. And this is usually my first call in those cases, because he often tells me, don't touch this one. There's nothing we can do, or don't touch this one. In the case of another American, he told me, don't touch it, because I know that they're negotiating a ransom payment behind your back. And as a matter of principle, I don't get involved when they're ransom payments. And so in this case, he said, look, we might be able to help, but you're going to have to get very personally involved. Come meet me in Istanbul, and you may have to then travel to Beirut to meet the head of a very prominent uh, militia in South Beirut, whom I had to keep anonymous and uh, use a pseudonym. But anyone who reads the footnotes of my book will know who I'm talking about. And uh, go meet him. And he then directed me on the trail of the group that had captured this young man. And it, it put me on a chase throughout the Middle East. Actually, I wasn't able to write that I had to also go to Syria in that because the, the military officer who kept me safe during my time in Syria was someone I'd known from my own days back in the Israeli army in 1990. 
and so he asked me not to mention it because it would basically out him in Syria. He's still an officer in the Syrian army. So I had to keep some of that out of the book. But essentially, it took me on a chase through the Middle East to Jordan and from there to Dubai, where I ended up catching up with the head of this drug gang that I knew at some point had held this young man. And without, I don't want to give away any spoilers. I want, obviously, the readers to read the book. But he's the person uh, that I had to figure out a way. He's a really evil individual who, you know, was trading in everything from drugs, from the amphetamine called Captagon, to young girls that were taken from Syrian village, villages and sold into sex slavery, to Western hostages, to, to weapons. Uh, and I had to figure out a way to entice him to give me the information I was looking for uh, on, on this young man. And so th this is the, essentially the story. And it all takes place very strangely over 20 days. Normally, in these kinds of instances, they, they can take months, sometimes years, actually. There, there's a case of one missing person who has been missing for years, where I'm still involved in. And so that was essentially, to, to condense this again over just a minute, this is the, the trajectory of the story. And uh, ultimately, it sounds like there was a happy ending. I'm not going to divulge. I'm not going <laughs> to divulge the story. A reader has to read. It. I will say this: that the uh, the two young girls who helped me actually connect with this drug lord uh, at, at great risk to their own lives. Um, there, there's a happy ending for them. They managed to escape that life that they had in Dubai. They were teenagers at the time. The younger of the two is the age of my daughter. My daughter today is 22 years old, and they managed to leave. Uh, we managed to get them out of there and bring them to a Western European country where they got new identities, new passports. And, and, uh, the older of the two just finished law school is going to be a prosecutor. So there's a happy ending to that. What happened with a young man? I really want the reader to, to read him or herself. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tease her strong. So how did this book impact you? And it sounds like you were kind of maybe a little bit burning out from, from all of the, you know, the, the, the terrors that you were encountering on this, you know, in this very sordid world that you were engaging with. How did this experience impact you? It was hard. It impacted me in many ways. It was extremely traumatic. And, you, you know, the, the fact that these two young women are now in my life still today is really a very uplifting. So there's something extremely inspiring about their story. And it, it, it is very uplifting. On the other hand, you know, the traumas of being involved in hostage negotiations and most of them don't have happy endings and you still stay involved with their families is a lot of sadness that doesn't really ever leave you. I think that it impacted me also in, in, I, this sounds so trite, and, and I just, but I don't have a non-trite way to say this, this concept of, you know, there by the grace of God go I, that, that there is uh, just this good fortune of having been born to the parents I was born, where I was born, having had the life I had for no merit of my own, just by luck. Uh, and, and that, you know, have, I could have been born one mile to the east or into a different place in the world and had a very different kind of life. So just this idea, this, this hopefully something that translates into a certain degree of appreciation for how good we have it and, and, and the appreciation for how safe my children are. But I know that sounds really trite. I just don't have a non-saccharine way of expressing something like that. But these are experiences that really do shape you. And, and it has also aged me a lot. I mean, Syria in particular is, has been an extremely difficult experience because I don't really see how in my lifetime, that's a country that's not going to be devastated. It's just been completely destroyed. And I think the whole point of showing power in Syria is continuing to destroy the country and the people unless until they run out of people, presumably one day. So and this ability of the world to just move on and say, that's just kind of Syria, that's just kind of Yemen, or that's just kind of 
Chad or whatever country you want to talk about, Central African Republic, this idea to move on in particular, obviously, with our Jewish experience of the 20th century, of the 13th century, of any century, of the, you know, the first century, you take any experience of the Jewish people, any century that you want, and the attempts to wipe us off the map uh, and that the world was able to just move on, that we've lamented all this time, this callousness, and that we're experiencing now. Uh, and it's not a political statement. It's just a, a deeply personal statement that for some reason, as human beings, we're hardwired not to have our hearts break over those kinds of calamities and perhaps we wouldn't be able to survive it otherwise. But but Syria has impacted me much more than these type of experiences and that kind of work in other parts of the world, in Libya and Yemen and other parts of Africa. I, I can't quite explain it. There's this hopelessness and this ongoing pain in Syria. People talk about the war in Syria as if the war's over. Assad won and therefore it's over, when in fact the killing is continuing at pretty much the same pace as it was continuing as it was five years ago or six years ago. Uh, and so that, and I write, I write about that in the postscript of my book that, you know, people, eventually people just say those two dreaded words, who cares? And so I was trying to explain exactly who cares and why we should care about that. What do you think are some of the core principles of successful hostage negotiation and dealing with sort of, you know, these really nefarious characters that I'm sure you have to, you know, kind of hold your nose and interact with? And Perhaps more importantly, since most listeners will probably never be in a hostage negotiation, right? Are there lessons from those principles that can be applied to life more broadly? Uh, I, I think we always, when we start to formulate broad principles for our lives, I think we usually fall flat on our face. So I, I, I'm very careful with the, the sweeping conclusions. The most important principle for me that has served me well in a hostage negotiation, what I write in the book, is this idea that. If you're in a room playing poker and you can't figure out who the sucker is, chances are it's you. <laughs> and, and so the most deadly mistake uh, in any kind of moment is to assume that we have power, that we have intelligence, that we can understand other people's motives and that we can outplay them. If you're in a hostage negotiation, you need to figure out a network of leverage and favors. And that's the only way. So in other words, there's an irrational belief. And that, of course, for example, parents or loved ones of a missing person fall into a trap for emotionally understandable reasons, which is you try to appeal to the empathy and the kindness of those who hold the hostage, which is, of course, absurd just on its face, because if these people possess that empathy, if they possess that empathy, that we wouldn't be having this conversation to begin with. So you have to also emotionally disabuse yourself of that and, and not make it a moral discussion. You don't get mad at a shark because the shark the shark's trying to eat you. That's what a shark does. You can't start constantly framing these things in moral terms. You have a job to do and you have to figure out if a group holds a, a, a person uh, holding him hostage, you have to figure out what the reason is. The hardest thing about the uh, James Foley and Stephen Sotloff and Peter Kassig and Kayla Muller a hostage wave of these gruesome uh, killings in late 2014, early 15, was that the whole point of those hostage takings was the public uh, assassinations. That was that was for them. There were recruitment videos for ISIS, right? And so, right, that wasn't a byproduct or or a tangential point. That was the actual. Right, goal. they were not interested in negotiating any release. And so, the hardest thing is to go back to a parent and say, "I'm sorry, there's really nothing I can do. This is the whole point of it. It's extremely painful, but it's an honest." answer. And so the, the first triage that you have to do is figure out what is it that the group holding the person wants? Is it money? 
Is it money plus? Is it a trade with someone else? And you know, and 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 we've had that. And as Israeli, you've gone through that. You've had Palestinian hostage taking airplane hostage takings that you need where for the sake of a publicity stunt plus the release of other uh, you know, Palestinians held in Israeli jail. So so you have to figure out first of all what it is, and then you have to figure out if it's something you can deliver and through whom you can deliver. And there isn't a hostage negotiator who has the ability to march in with a bag of goodies. You have to figure out how you can do that. And you have to navigate a world of sanctions and a world of favors and counterfavors. Then there are certain lines that you don't want to cross. As mentioned earlier, I don't really get involved in ransom payments. And it's a matter of principle, not only because it's usually illegal, especially if it's terrorist group, but even in the wink, wink kind of way where you allow someone else to pay a ransom, because I really believe that every payment of ransom creates 10 new hostages. Which is the the Mishnah says this, right? Right. Mission says this. Exactly. And so you have to figure out what your tools are. So for me, uh, there are unfortunately some cases where I have to be honest with families or governments and say, I'm, I don't have any leverage. I don't have an access to those who have it, even to get your information on the person. So you have to be honest about the first thing. And then the next thing is to figure out what someone wants and always assume that just because people are evil doesn't mean that they're stupid, which is another kind of weird misconcept that we have. It's the same thing we do with language. We think if we speak to someone in not something that's not their foreign language, if they don't speak good English or if they don't speak good French or whatever, therefore they must be stupid. Again, that weird kind of irrational conclusion that we make, it's the same thing here. People who are thriving in these war economies, drug dealers, hostage takers, they're usually not stupid. They can be evil by what we consider evil, but the, and they have their own stories. And I'm not trying to it's not a form of moral licensing I'm trying to justify, but but the goal is here never to underestimate the people you have. And we fall into that trap the whole time because we have these weird bipolar ways of good and evil looking at the world without understanding the relativity of that concept. Uh, and so once you've shed your, all that stuff and you just go about it as a challenge, almost an intellectual challenge, a group has a person, who's that group? What does that group want? If I know what that group wants, is it something I can deliver? Do I have what it takes to deliver it, or do I have through my network of relationships, people who may owe favor? As an example, there was a Westerner who we managed to get released because the mother of one of the hostage takers had cancer and needed chemotherapy and radiation. And it wasn't possible to get that in the country where she was. And so the ability to arrange for that was a sort of a counter favor and got that person released. So that's the kind of you know, but but I had to arrange for that through someone else. I had to make sure that that was covered, that the expense of that treatment was covered through someone else, right? So that becomes a pretty complicated way. But that's usually the only type of constellation of hostage takings that have happy endings, unless you really flat out pay ransom, whether as a government or through another government, which are the cases I don't get involved in. The only ones that have happy endings, either by getting proof of life and information, or and if you're really lucky, getting someone released, are where you can create a web of favors and counter favors and accomplish your goal that way. What's interesting is that sounds like you really have to take a very dispassionate, detached approach to this and you know, not a moralistic one and not even a judgmental one, which I can imagine is a challenge, which is interesting because you know the second part of my question was, well, are there exportable lessons or principles that, you know, things that we can extract from the concepts of, of hostage negotiation. And in a certain way, it's, it actually sounds almost like the reverse in the sense that it could be dangerous to export some of these lessons because the very dispassion or the very detachment that is called upon in these kinds of discussions 
you know, can really erode a person's moral sensibilities in their own actual lives when they're trying to develop themselves, develop their own character, you know, as a honest and decent human being. Would you characterize that as, as sort of a an accurate assessment of this sort of this inverse relationship between dealing with bad actors and, you know, living life in your own way? It is. Uh, you know, you're showing a binary choice that, that absolutely agree with you. There's another one on the other end of that where we I breach my own rules the whole time because they're so hard to keep, which is in order to stay detached, one of the most important things to do is to try not to interact with the family because you get really drawn into a, an emotional hole that is, you can't climb out of. And it really starts to affect you. It's a little bit the way, you know, if you are a pediatric oncologist, you don't become best friends with the parents of the child that you're treating because it's such a heartbreaking, gut-wrenching kind of process. You know, if, if you start sobbing every time you have to treat this child or perform surgery, you're not going to be able to do what you need to do. So you have to figure out a way to compartmentalize without becoming a jerk, right? Where, without becoming a callous human being. And so the first rule would be try not to interact with the parents, uh, for example, of a missing person. But I breach that rule the whole time because it's impossible not to do, especially with prolonged processes. The parents want to hear it. For them, the fact that there's any kind of progress, you're not going to say to yourself, well, I'm just going to withhold any degree of hope and progress from them for the sake of my own detachment. So within days, I find myself breaching my own rule. Uh, it's, it's an impossibility. I can't really live it in a different way. But I, so I, I get emotionally much more vested than I really should to do this in a kind of a Dr. Spock kind of totally detached way, which would be the right way to do that. So this is very different. This is not unique to the, the world of hostage negotiations. As I mentioned, it's true if you're a pediatric oncologist or a brain surgeon. It's, it's true in, in many areas, but we do the best we can with the, with the character that we have. But but all these instances do stay with me. They're, sort of, they're really scars that do run. Obviously, those that have happy endings are extremely uplifting. Those that don't become scars that you carry with you. Nothing comparable to God forbid, Shalonada parents who have to bury their child. But it's it's that type of a sentiment, obviously, something you think about and, and you never really stop thinking about. But, you know, my own imperfections, of course, come into play in, in that in that way, too. Well, I would just say that the ability to compartmentalize ultimately at the end of the day is limited. <laughs> you know, we are human and we are, you know, whole integrated beings. It's not like part of us goes into negotiation and part of us stays home or part of us goes into surgery and so forth. So there, there are, I guess, skills of detachment that one can cultivate, but ultimately, you know, th that itself has a limit. And it probably is good that it has a limit because if it didn't have a limit, that would probably say something more concerning about us, you know, as empathetic, you know, human beings. So fascinating, fascinating. Daniel, tell us where could people learn all about your work? It sounds like you've written more than just this one recent book. It sounds like there's others as well. Is there a central website with all of your content or if someone just searches you on Amazon, what's the best way to find all about what you've done? So I have the website, daniellevinauthor.com. You can find everything about the book, about myself there, you know, events where I speak, recordings. And then I, obviously the book can be got, you purchased everywhere with your indie bookstore or next to you or with Amazon, which from the whole gambit. So I don't do social media. So there's no, you know, Facebook, Twitter, anything like that. Is I, that because of your profile in, in the international negotiations or is that just a personal uh, I choice? Wish, I wish I could tell you that I'm just extremely disciplined and then stay away from that. But the truth is I just have no interest in it. That's that's really the truth. <laughs> For me, it's, it's it, there's so much negativity that comes with it that I don't, I don't really see the upside, but it's certainly anti-ethical to my work. Yeah. I, I mean, the, even writing the book and 
going public with the processes in the book was something I had to deliberate for a long time. I had to get a lot of approvals in order to be able to publish these things. But that's at least a process of going public that I can control. Once you enter the world of social media, you lose control over this process entirely. Well, it's uh, it's really, you talk about the corrosive nature of you know, social media and the inability to have a great conversation or real conversation on there. And uh, one of the things I love about the podcast medium is that it sort of transcends that and it allows people, you know, I, I think I, I certainly personally have, have hold some different political views and, and probably religious views and so forth, but such an honor to get to, to hear your perspective and be able to have a, a, you know, a real conversation about that. And again, that's what I love about the podcast medium. And it, it sounds like you're doing incredible work, both in terms of the hostage negotiations, but more broadly in helping people all over the world that we don't necessarily think about in our daily lives, have a better life, have a more you know, civilized and, and fair existence and a shot at a happy and successful flourishing life. And there's so much credit uh, to that. So I really want to thank you for your time and, and for the amazing work you're doing all over the world. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. It was really nice talking to you. And I agree with that. It's, it's nice to be able to have that continuum as a conversation rather than just talking sound bites. I, it was really nice talking to you. Daniel Levin or Levine, depends on and how you want to pronounce it. Either way, a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. And just a final reminder to join me along with almost 8,000 other people as a daily donor to dailygiving.org. You will be thrilled with yourself for days, months, and years to come. Dailygiving.org, proud sponsor of Jews You Should Know. Please join me in signing up right now. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.